Welcome to Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of these series, I've been chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod about what they have learned about life and theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. You're listening to a bonus episode of Behind the Scenes Recordings. And today, I've joined Declan for a chat. So, hello, Declan. Hello, Lucy. So we're sat down today to talk about a topic which we actually covered in the first season of this podcast, and that is the subject of character. And I know that your ideas have been changing since we first talked about character on this podcast a year ago. So I'd love to have a chat about it today. But it's also part of what I really love about these conversations is that you're constantly reframing and reshaping and perfecting your ideas as they go along, which is really refreshing. Well, yes, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know that I've covered character. Um, and also, I, I, I would never think of myself as perfecting something, because that which is perfect is dead. I'd say shifting my position to see it maybe a bit more clearly. Well, let's shift our position about the idea of a character. Yeah. Now, what's the problem, do you think, with character? Well, there's nothing really the matter with it in itself. It's just, it becomes a kind of false friend in a way. It becomes something that makes us feel comfortable, or it becomes a large monument, something that you have to build, something you have to fret about, something you have to get anxious about. Also, more frighteningly, something about which you can do a lot of research, and if you do enough research, then bingo, it'll be all right, you'll pass the exam and you'll get character. But that isn't really how we function as human beings. And we have to know something about the background story, that's definitely true. But I just get worried sometimes that character has become a monument, particularly when it's used in expressions like building a character or finding the truth of a character. It's, it starts to worry me, and I, and I believe it makes some actors quite anxious as well. And what I find really exciting about this approach to the idea of a character is that it allows for characters to be deeply unstable and unpredictable, then a character is not a blueprint of a human being or a set of rules that we follow about how they would behave in certain situations. You're suggesting that characters are much more mutable and shifting than that. They're not like fixed immutable commodities that we can we can get. No, we're not. We're very much not. I think what passes for character is in fact our solution to the problem in the world as we see it. And we go on trying to fix the world, mend the world, make things a bit better, sort of make ourselves more comfortable, whatever it is we're trying to do. But that actually is is basically what our character is. It is true, however, that when we're young, we get into habits of fixing the world outside us, and these harden and fossilize into habit. And sometimes these aren't very helpful when we're older, and sometimes they're very, very helpful when we're older. It all depends. So I, I just think it's very good to see characters being something that's shifting. But something else, and that is that um, Shakespeare's brilliant and, and maddeningly foresightful because he understood the idea that a human being was an actor very, very early on in his um, career. And he talks about people acting all the time. And I think that is what we do. We have we have different parts that we play. It doesn't mean that we're liars. But it does mean that if we say we're one thing, if we get frightened we should be one thing, um, we can end up feeling fraudulent. And that's very, very bad. We start to feel ashamed of the fact that we, we can be many different things. Um, it's not good. And that's one of the reasons why there's something very healthy about theatre, that there's something actually quite healthy about the process of being an actor, of acting, because you're, in a way you're kind of forced into understanding that we can be many different things. And I think some people suffer from 
a lack of permission to be many different things. And that seems like a very human thing, right? That we actually contain multitudes. And sometimes we don't know ourselves very well. I mean, there's all sorts of occasions where you'll suddenly find yourself thinking, why on earth did I do that? Or surprising yourself in your reaction to something. So the idea that even we have a character that we can understand and grasp is a bit ludicrous. I think so, yes. I mean, I love that prayer, you know, dear God, don't put me to the test. You know, may, may I never be tested because I don't know what I'd do under extreme circumstances. I could be incredibly brave. I could be incredibly cowardly. I don't, I don't know which I would be. And if you do get put to the test, you hope you'll be okay. So a character isn't like a fixed sculpture of a thing that we need to make. It's more like the sum total of all the solutions that an individual breathing body has to the space around them. That's think, what makes up your character. I, yes, I guess so. I mean, I don't think there is a sum total. I, it's interesting to understand why, why we have a resistance to this mutability of character and why we don't really want to think we can be many different things. And it, it brings it raises the ugly head of lying. You know, he's pretending to be one thing, but he is another. Of course, sometimes we lie. And sometimes, of course, people are putting on an act. Sometimes people are fake. Of course they are. But just because we can be many different things to different people doesn't mean we're necessarily lying. It might mean we're lying, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily mean that. In fact, the one lie, I think, is to think I am one thing and I will remain that one thing. And if I'm not that one thing, it is an absolute disaster. But presumably you're not actually saying that there's no such thing as character at all. I mean, I, Declan, am not you and you are not me. And we are clearly different human beings and we have different characters. So it's not to chuck the idea of character out out the window wholesale, I'm guessing. It's just that this focus on getting a character can sometimes actually just block life. Is that no, what you're saying? I, if you were acting me or I were acting you, we'll never discover everything. We can't possibly fully research another human being. But I think it's good to go in understanding that it's going to be mutable and that we'll never actually get there. Those two things that are really important, that it's a path that we'll never arrive at a destination, and that path is going to be continually moving. Those two things are great when you go on the journey to see the world as another person sees it. I'm always slightly worried when people use images about, oh, he has to get inside the, ca the skin of that character. I think that's okay as long as you remember that you're only inside the skin because you can see through the eye holes the world that's outside. You, you know, the mask is only useful because it's got two holes in it. The, the, the mask alters what you see in the world outside you. Of course, none of us are born as a blank canvas. Um, a lot of us will have genetic predispositions to certain things inside us. But a lot of what passes for character is to do with survival mechanisms that we develop when we're young or our way of dealing with the world. And these become habits. And quite a lot of what we talk about, we often talk about people's character, a lot of what we're talking about is in fact just the habit, the habit of being me, the habit of being you. But in the heat of the moment, um, all the actor really can do is see what the character sees and respond to it. So it's really, a character is really all about their space then. It's about what they see in the space around them and how they react to, to that. It's actually really practical. A character is made up as a series of reactions to problems, right? Yeah, it's a useful rule of thumb for the actor to think that the only thing that the actor can do is to relate the people that are around him, to the things that are in the actor's head, to the things that are in the audience, to, to the words that he's about to say or has said. So it's all in the relation that the life of the actor exists. It's not a thing in itself. So this reminds me of a previous episode when we were talking about Immanuel Kant, the philosopher. Yeah. Uh, and he says that reality is a bit like walking around wearing green sunglasses. If you've only ever worn green sunglasses, you're going to think the world is green, even yeah. if it isn't. Mm. So in other words, it's completely, completely subjective, completely relative. 
And so the best that we can do for, for a character, it sounds like, as you said, hmm. look through the eye holes of their mask. What are their green glasses? How do they see the world? And that's really the only thing about a character that we can get in inverted commas. Yeah, uh, what I'm saying is actually, I think goes even further than that. I think it's more than just the fact that we, we see the world in different ways. It's that all that we are is the position from which we see the world. I don't actually think there's any more to us than our relations. That's all we are. Whether that's true or not doesn't particularly matter. All it needs to do is to be useful for the actor, and I believe it genuinely is, that your only existence is based in your relations with the things that are outside you. We are never one stable, immutable, calm thing that you can depend on. We're not that. We're just never going to be that. What we are going to be continues condemned to have a series of relationships, which is fantastic. What I love about this is it sounds like a lot of theory, Immanuel mm. Kant and yes, the yes. world being relative, but actually it's pretty simple and very basic, which is that you can just rely on the space to define how the character is going to behave. As long as you turn your cameras out, look at the space of the world, the space of the scene, the space of the play, and how the character sees that space, then the character will be formed out of a series of reactions to that space. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And we have a lot of resistance to that because we want to, we want to feel we can exist separately from the space. We don't want to be so dependent on the space. But we are. We're completely dependent on the space in which we are. That I think that is our only existence. But it's also incredibly liberating because characters are so profoundly unpredictable. I mean, thinking about Macbeth, for example, he's a character who at the beginning of the play is described as literally disemboweling somebody without blinking an eyelid. He unseams someone to the, from the knaves to the chaps, you know, on the battlefield. He is utterly bloodthirsty and that's just part of his day job. But then one day later, because it's a different context and a different relationship, because it's Duncan, the older man that he adores, a much smaller shedding of blood profoundly traumatises him. He's not a fixed character who's going to react in the same way each time. The way he reacts to the context and the space, the way that changes, makes him profoundly unstable. Exactly. We know that Macbeth has done terrible things, for example, to the Thane of Corda, who was ripped from the nave to the chops and he's had his head cut off and stuck on the battlements. You know, so we know he's... Um, a scary person, Macbeth, and that he can do all this with his feelings cut off. But what totally astonishes Macbeth is that the sight of Duncan's blood is completely different. He didn't know that. He didn't know that about himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't really have done it. He suspected it might be the case, but he didn't fully know that until after that he'd experienced it. And it surprised him and his wife that his reaction to that blood is so completely different. There's another Macbeth that he wasn't aware of, that he was trying to hide in the wardrobe, hide in the attic, to do what he wanted to do, but out it comes, which is the, the Macbeth that has compassion. And that's the part that drives him crazy. And that's such a wonderful point as well, that often characters are completely surprised by themselves. There's that wonderful line in King Lear that he doth know himself but slenderly. But actually, we all know ourselves but slenderly. No, I know. I think it's a bit of a cheek when Goneril says he hath ever but slenderly known himself because we don't really know ourselves and we are full of surprises. And we know ourselves if we're, you know, if it's an ordinary day and you're ordering a coffee. But actually, as soon as the stakes start to go up, you don't really know yourself. And we be doing more and more unexpected things and we react in the most surprising ways to um, events. And so... Are you essentially saying the character cannot exist independently of the space? The actor can't go away, prepare a character, bring it into rehearsal and, and sort of launch it into a scene. The character is only forged in relationship to the space. Yeah, we're completely um, um, 
creatures of the world in which we inhabit. And if we'd lived 50 years ago or 50 years in time, we would be completely different people. So, no, no, I'd always be me, no matter what the context was. No, no, you'd be completely different. We'd be utterly different. We've been formed by totally different pressures. And so the space is like a crucible, which creates the pressure to form the character. It is, but the character's not formed once. The character goes on being formed and reformed and reformed. But yeah, no, it's continually changing our character. Our character is a solution to the problem. It's no more than a solution. But this also feels like potentially quite a challenging thing to introduce into a rehearsal room, because it's actually very comforting to hold on to the idea that there's a character which you can get, you know, a thing that you're trying to build and present to the audience. What do you offer to the actor in place of that thing to hold on to? Their relations with um, their imaginations, with the, their relations with the audience, their relations with the words, with the sounds that they're making, the sounds they're hearing, and with their partners, with the, with the other characters that they have to deal with on stage. I mean, there's a whole complex world for each character to sort out, full of delicious, terrible problems that need to be fixed and mended and put right. So the space is never neutral. The space always makes for work for the character. And it's never it's never easy, um, and that's what I'd I'd offer them instead because that because the energy from the outside is is liberating, the energy from inside is toxic. And I have to say I've noticed this in rehearsal rooms with you when you're asking questions of an actor, you'll often ask questions that focus on concrete things in the space around them. So questions that start with things like what, where, and who. You know, what can you see? Where are you standing? Where have you come from? Who are you talking to? which are questions about space and questions about reacting to space. And you don't tend to ask questions that start how or why. No, I hate why, because why lifts your feet off the ground and the the idea that you might know why things are happening is is really quite strange, you know. I mean, you... You, you, the characters may think they know why they're doing things. The Macbeths might think they know why they murdered Duncan, but um, I don't think they do know. Um, the more I look at the play, the less I know. Also, how is a very dodgy question for the actor, as in questions like, how would you like me to play this scene? How should I direct this play? Because it, it's, put, it's put us into a ridiculously godlike position, like, oh, there are all sorts of ways we could do it. We could do this or we could do it that way. Actually, you've got to keep looking at the thing itself, until you have no choice left. I mean, the, the advertiser's great mantra is, we never forget you have a choice. And I think for me, it's, the important thing is to make sure you have no choice when you can't, because you've got a choice, you've gone wrong. Because on the whole, when the stakes go up, we end up being, we each end up being cornered and thinking, I don't really have a choice. In fact, there's always a choice. I mean, you can always choose not to murder Duncan. But what's weird is, uh, and, and, and wonderful and human is putting on stage the fact that they get called into the idea that they, they have no option but to do it, and do it now. In fact, do it five minutes ago, it would be even better. It sounds like it's such a slight reframing of the same idea. What do you see that's making you react like this? Yeah. As opposed to, why are you acting like this? Yes. It's essentially about the same thing, but it's the flip side. What's yes. outside that's making mm. you do this, rather than what are you doing from the inside of the character out? Yes, it sounds small. Actually, it's the most enormous difference in the world. Because why means I might have an overview as to why I do things, and I, I don't really. And people will say, why did you do that? And you'll say, have to end up saying very often, well, I, I, I don't know, I, I just did it. I've been in very funny rehearsals with people asking, having actual conversations about why does Juliet fall in love with Romeo and so on. And, I mean, you can have them, but it's, it's not much more than a parlour game. We can afterwards, we can analyse it and think she wants to get away from those terrible parents and terrible Paris and get out of that ghastly world. And the interfering nerds. dreadful, yes, exactly. 
<laughs> but if we have a nice why and how chat, if we have the why chat, for example, you know, why do you think she does this? Why do you think he feels this? Why do you think this might happen? Why do you think? Um, it's fine, but actually, if you look down, you'll see your feet are slightly off the ground because we're making godlike judgments about motive, about which we, we can't really know very much. When we look at other people, when we look at other people's lives, we think they have such a multiplicity of choices, you know. Um, but that's not, I don't think that's what, I think that's the interior of a human being in my experience of, of my friends or people I love, you know, that we, we do the best we can. We don't feel we've got a lot of choices. So do you think it's fair to say that it's not that you don't think character doesn't exist, it's just that we shouldn't fetishize it and that it's not much without the space around it? It's nothing without the space around it. So that's the first thing. It doesn't exist at all without space around it. And it's fine to mention it from time to time if you really want to. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's to be taken that seriously. It's not as serious a business as the space. Fantastic. And I think that's where we're going to end for today. So thank you very much, Declan. Thank you very much, Lucy, on this great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Not True But Useful. The music you're hearing was composed by Sergei Chekrashov for Cheek by Jal's production of Three Sisters. Join us next week for another bonus episode to enjoy in the run-up to Christmas. Until then, stay well. Stay well.